Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler and you're listening to Volume 1, The Prehistoric World. This is Episode 12, Hunter-Gatherers. This episode is important due to the fact that our chronological story has brought us to the verge of a dramatic change in human society behaviour. During the last 10,000 years of human existence, we have seen a radical shift from hunter-gatherer societies into agricultural societies. Agricultural societies have domesticated plants and animals through the practice of farming, which is something that we will explore in detail in future episodes. In order to have a good understanding of the transition into agriculture, we must first understand the nature of hominins previously in the way that they would sustain themselves. So in this episode, we will look at those hunter-gatherer societies that spent most of their time foraging for food in order to stay alive. In order to do this, we will go back in time and look at the developing technologies and see what impact they may have had on societies. Hominin Adaptation If we go back to our very first podcast episode, which introduced the first hominins previous to the Australopithecus, we were looking at a species of animal that may have also been in some way linked to our closest extant relative, the chimpanzee. Many of the studies that we have looked at in previous episodes, such as speech and language and technology, we have looked at chimpanzee behaviour as a possible indicator for how our ancestors used to live. Aurorin tugenensis was alive in East Africa around 6 million years ago. One thing we mentioned about Aurorin tugenensis in our very first podcast is that scientists have recognised its hands to be surprisingly human-like, even more so than discoveries that are dated to a more recent age, such as Ardipithecus and Australopithecus. So much so that some scientists have raised the question of whether we have descended from Aurorin and that Australopithecus is actually a side branch, less directly related to modern humans. Nonetheless, the hands demonstrate that Aurorin must have had the kind of precision grip that would have made handling stone and wood quite natural and commonplace. And the fact that we know that it was bipedal suggests that Aurorin would have been quite happy to carry stone and wood around in its hands while commuting on its hind legs either along branches or along the ground, even if only for brief periods. It is difficult to know exactly what Aurorin ate, and as such how it gathered food, so we have to try to make assumptions based on what we can guess about the environment it lived in and its potential similarities to animals 
that we know a lot more about. If we look at chimpanzees, we know that they use rocks to break open nuts, so this is a form of tool use. Aurorin's dexterity would suggest that maybe it was able to do the same, so Aurorin could venture out into the rainforests or the savannah grasslands and gather fruits and nuts which it would have been able to eat. Its comparatively smaller teeth would support this. Either way, the fossil record and artifact recovery from this period is so sparse that our theories have to be made through high levels of speculation. If we understand more about the stone technology of our ancestors through discoveries of stone tools such as the 2.5 million year old Oldowan technology, we have little chance of knowing what wood technology was in use. Chimpanzees will use wooden digging sticks, so there is apparently no reason not to assume that our ancestors could not have done the same. Chimpanzees supplement their diet with insects, which they will use wooden sticks and plant stems to entice them from their mounds. Once again, this is not impossible for our ancestors, but it should come as no surprise that most of these implements would have rotted away over time, leaving no modern evidence for us to discover. If Aurorin did use stone and wood, it may have used them to help it to access foodstuffs and even to fight off predators. Rainforests to grasslands. Another observation that we made from our earlier podcasts is the alteration of the hominin heartland of Africa from rainforest to grassland as the climate changed. Not only would this put pressure on hominins to adapt to life on the ground as opposed to in the trees, but it would have also affected the plant foods available. Hominins would have had to turn their attention to eating the more ground-based tubers as the available fruits would have reduced. Tubers are more difficult to chew and digest, so this would explain the apparently larger jaws and teeth that evolved in some species, and even the sagittal crest that appeared in paranthropines, that provided an anchor for the jaw muscles that would have to have unusually higher strength and stamina to continuously munch their way through the fibrous plant roots available for it to eat. It would have been quite imaginable to see Australopithecines adapting wood to create digging tools to access the tuber roots. Other species of hominin had to turn towards a more carnivorous diet to subsidise the lack of tree-growing fruits and nuts. If we suggest that this would have happened either before or during the Oldowan period, then we can revisit a suggestion made in episode 5 of this podcast that Oldowan tools would have been used to clean animal hides for warmth and shelter, and this would have happened after the consumption of the animal flesh of a scavenged or hunted kill, which would have also required the Oldowan tools to potentially kill the animal and carve the meat. If the Australopithecines and its subsequent evolutionary replacements such as Homo habilis were scraping animal hides clean, then would they have been creating the first material carrier bags? What better way to carry your foraged food finds back to camp than an animal hide sling? 
Further to this, if this is what was happening, then potentially you were creating slings that could have been ideal for carrying infants that were losing their strong and natural arboreal grip and relied more on being carried by their parent than clinging to their parent. Whatever the possibilities, I'm starting to get carried away here. So let's get back to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle and the popular theories throughout its evolution. Acheulean foraging. As Homo habilis made way for Homo erectus, the Mode 1 Olderwan technology made way for the Mode 2 Acheulean technology. For a more detailed analysis of this technology, feel free to listen to episode 5 of this podcast. The Acheulean ushered in an age of better and more effective stone tools which allowed hominins to become more confident about having meat as part of its diet. Acheulean hand axes would not have only been useful at carving meat from bones but also cracking bones open to get at the marrow. We should not be so one-dimensional to not see the value of this hand axe in this case and discount the probability that some groups would have been cracking open wood to get to insect larva and beehives to get to the honey. One of our biggest technological advances of the Acheulean period is the control of fire. As we have learned in previous podcasts, humans must have discovered that by eating heated resources of meat and plants that they were able to digest their food more easily, meaning more energy for brain growth and development and an evolutionary edge. The acquisition of the foodstuffs probably didn't change too much as this is a food preparation change and we do not see much in the way of technological advancement when it comes to the actual tools themselves. Homo erectus was living a relatively comfortable lifestyle and this enabled it to spread out and colonise areas away from the hominin heartland of Africa. As the range of a species expands, we find that those on the fringes of the range encounter different circumstances and pressures and this in turn can lead to the beginnings of speciation. What this means is that some hominins may find that the area in which they live in is a superb place for hunting marine life such as fish, crustaceans and shellfish. These peoples would develop tools that are specialist for fish hunting such as barbed poles which would not be much use to other hominins living at another far extreme of the range who were finding that their best meat opportunities were found by hunting large game such as mammoths. Add to this the fact that the climates would be differing for each of these groups, meaning that the fauna and flora were generally quite different, and you can see the need for each of the groups to adapt and evolve to be able to survive in their differing environments. This would mean that each generation would become more specialised for their own environment and subsequently the two groups would become more and more distinct from one another. And if this goes on for long enough, we would be able to distinctly tell the difference between the two hominins, meaning that they were speciating. This is the kind of speciation that we see if it was indeed Homo heidelbergensis that evolved into both Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens, for example. It is this kind of speciation that may explain the completely unique hominin 
called Homo floresiensis, which we discovered in episode 10, which were the incredibly and comparatively small human beings that had evolved on the isolated island of Flores in modern-day Indonesia. This is a great example of speciation over many, many generations due to completely different environmental pressures. Mousterian culture. Jumping back to episode 7 of the podcast, we encountered the Neanderthals and their attributed Mousterian tool culture. So if older one is mode 1 and Acheulean is mode 2, then Mousterian is mode 3. You may recall the Levallois technique of napping the core stone into something resembling of a tortoise shell and then striking flakes from this stone core to produce nice sharp blades. A form of stone tool associated closely with Mousterian culture is the production of sharp stone tips which are used in association with wooden spears to construct composite tools possibly held together with tar extracted from trees. So let us now picture our burly Neanderthal with a wooden spear in his hands that has a nice sharp stone point. He is ready to go hunting. Before we can confirm that these composite tools existed, we can see evidence of spear use with the Schoeningen spears identified in episode seven. The fact that alongside these spears, we have found a great number of bones belonging to horses, deer and bison demonstrates to us that we know that these proto-Neanderthals were not concerned about hunting animals larger than themselves. We even believe that due to the consideration of the weighting of these spears, that these hominins would have used the spears as javelins, as well as through close quarter attacks. We can observe animal remains at Neanderthal sites to determine their diet. But another study is through the recovery of coprolites. Coprolites sound disgusting, but they excite paleoanthropologists immensely. So what is a coprolite? Well, it is the name we give to prehistoric poo. And if you want to know what something is eating, then you would probably not be able to get more clues than through a piece of its poo. So a coprolite is a fossilised poo. Neanderthal coprolites of an age dating back 50,000 years have been discovered. This is particularly significant because we believe that this is when Neanderthals were coming to the end of their time on the planet and we can gain an idea about how far they had come in terms of diet compared to the composite tools that they were utilising. We know that Neanderthals were fearless and unfussy when it came to their dinner. Evidence of mammoth bones and of cut marks even on Neanderthal remains themselves show that when they were hungry, they would eat anything. So the gigantic mammoth were fair game and cannibalism was also not beyond them too. What the coprolites demonstrate is that the Neanderthals were subsidising their meat-rich diet with a balance of berries, nuts and other vegetables. This has halted the somewhat retrospectively naive assumption that Neanderthals were solely meat-eaters. Fishermen. 
Going back to episode 8 and our podcast on the emergence of Homo sapiens in Africa, we can go to the coastal caves of South Africa to find evidence of shellfish consumption over 150,000 years ago. However, a discussion from episode 6 which discussed inscriptions on seashells and the clever boring of a hole in the shell of a mussel to enable it to open without the use of heat was also a clear indication that there must have been an intention to eat the contents and we believe that these shells are contemporary with Homo erectus. Those populations of hominins that live on coasts would have surely understood that the sea contained a rich source of food. Fish bones are unlikely to be preserved over time as well as mammalian bones so it may be a trickier venture for us to definitely say from which point hominins were actively hunting and consuming fish. Let us look into the origins of our passion for seafood and the advancing technologies associated with it. Back in 1988, an important discovery was made at the Semliki River in the Republic of Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. John Yellen, who received his PhD at Harvard University in the United States of America, was working at the site alongside his wife, Alison Brooks. Their team discovered bones that had been intricately modified. The bones had been carved in such a way that the edges were now barbed in order to create edges that would lodge themselves on soft material such as fish flesh if pulled from one direction. Thermoluminescence and electron spin resonance dating of the artefacts points to an age of around 90,000 years ago. Therefore, we are seeing signs of significant intelligence and dexterity with the barbs being intricately carved from the bones. The considerable collection of catfish bones has pointed Yellen and Brooks to believe that these bones were used as harpoons. The harpoons are referred to as the Semliki harpoons, named after the river from which they are believed to have been used at, but can also be called Katanda harpoons, after the name of the Congolese territory they were discovered in. The discovery of such artefacts flies in the face of the theory known as the Great Leap Forward, which in brief is a theory that suggests that humans very suddenly advanced in their intelligence and abilities around 50,000 years ago. We have even learned during the course of this podcast that it might be slightly naive to try to put definite dates and times on first cultural emergencies, when it often seems more likely that they can be more of a gradual advance in technology. Understanding the physical ability of barbed bones is something that can be applied to the technology of microliths, which often act as barbs in their own right. Microliths. Microliths are small, sharp stone flakes which have been excavated at a great many sites of human occupation. Recognising a microlith is quite easy. It is a very small, sharp flake of stone. Identifying the intentions and usages of each type of microlith is a completely different game altogether. Let us have a closer look at these microliths and see what theories we can come up with in relation to them 
and our hunter-gatherer lifestyles. The first type of microlith was most likely just arrowheads that were very likely to be hefted onto a wooden spear. Sidubu Cave in the KwaZulu-Natal province of South Africa is a sandstone cave and it is very significant when looking to date potential advances in human lifestyle. It is believed that it was occupied by Homo sapiens from around 70,000 years ago. Sidubu Cave contained a bone point which is thought to be an arrowhead and it is dated to around 61,000 years ago. This has caused scientists to ask the question, were humans using a bow and arrow in order to hunt in the south of Africa 60,000 years ago? The oldest physical evidence is only from the last 10,000 years. Certainly, there is strong evidence that adhesive substances were being produced in the cave, so that would support the idea of composite arrows being created there. Microliths are a bit of a quiz to the modern scientist. With a great big Acheulean hand axe in your hand, you are under no illusions that you have in your hand the all-in-one tool for striking, carving and cutting. With a microlith, it's anybody's guess what you do with the thing. They are so small that you could easily hide half a dozen of them in your hand, so it would make perfect sense for them to have been created with the intention of being part of a composite tool. Maybe they were attached with resin to a bone or an antler, which could have become the perfect harpoon with which to capture small animals and even fish. So it appears that the Semliki harpoons had evolved into something more complex, but at the same time more durable. It is very clear that humans were feeling under pressure to get creative with their tool technology in order to get the edge over their prey and the edge over others who were eyeing the same prey. Prehistoric chemistry. We briefly discussed the possibility of creating a prehistoric bow and arrow and how there is evidence which suggests that arrows were being created using microlithic arrowheads and that it would make sense if they were being used as part of a bow and arrow for the purpose of hunting. Recent studies also suggest that humans would have also discovered that some of the fruits of the trees suitable for the construction of wooden tools would have been poisonous. This is not something that is directly good for humans. Certainly Charles Darwin would have had an opinion of the outcome of survival of the fittest if humans that chose to eat poisonous fruit were up against humans that chose not to eat poisonous fruit. However, what about if any of those humans who recognised the fruit was poisonous was to then use that poison on their arrowheads before they were to go hunting? This is actually something which goes on in today's hunter-gatherer societies where these peoples are actually using poisonous plants to make their arrows more effective by further debilitating the animal that they are attacking. The fact that today's societies practice this is strong evidence to suggest that prehistoric peoples were doing it too. They would have been very aware of which fruit and vegetation was poisonous, so it would have been common sense to try it out on their arrows. And if it proved to be successful, 
then the culture would have spread out and descended down the generations. Therefore, today's anthropologists are keen to employ the services of expert chemists to assist them in studying residues on prehistoric stone and bone flakes to find out more information. Certainly by now in our story, we are on the cusp of a revolution of agriculture, which is a dramatic change in human nature, and something that we will explore in more detail in a future podcast. Homo sapiens by around 10,000 years ago had long seen off all other human species and had become the sole survivor. They had colonised most of the habitable land on the planet, so therefore they had become incredibly widespread, and as such, societies would have been living in very differing ways according to the hunter-gatherer opportunities of each area of the world. The fauna and flora would differ dramatically from one part of the world to another. The terrain and climate would have also differed to large degrees. Humans in the Americas would have had different challenges to those in Africa, and those in Europe, and those in Australia, and those in Asia. Technologies would have developed independently depending on where you were on the planet. Cultures would become more diverse. The study of these differing cultures is something which we call ethnography and it comes as a result of the success of Homo sapiens. Highly intelligent, adaptable, pioneering, enterprising and not least of all by being hunter-gatherers wherever in the world that they lived. Hunter-gathering was a common thing that all humans had in common. So becoming agricultural on the face of all these facts was completely bizarre, considering the risks and the work required to make it successful. Summary of hunter-gatherers. So it seems very sad that we are approaching a time where the amazing success of hunter-gathering would start to become a thing of the past. So let us summarise all that we have discovered during this podcast episode and celebrate our amazing ability to become the first species of animal to conquer the entire planet. Firstly, let's dispel that myth that some of our hominin relatives ate meat only. There is absolutely no evidence of this. Vegetables have always been on the hominin menu and the question is, whether we have subsidised that with animal meat and to what sort of degree. Certainly, we would imagine that Australopithecines had a very rich diet of fruit and vegetables and as hominins developed into ground-based animals, some had to transition to a more tuber-based diet, meaning tougher to eat and digest plants, while others chose to scavenge the meat of the kills of other predators. Those that did found that there was an increase in pressure for them to learn to go out and learn to kill their own meals. So they developed an ability to hunt and create the weapons required to make this a possibility. The sticks and stones used to dig up plants and insects were traded for purposefully prepared stone blades and hand axes with which they could kill and butcher the meat. Both meat and vegetables were cooked when hominins discovered how to harness fire. So although the same foodstuffs were being foraged, the preparation for consumption was changing. Coastal populations were exploiting the marine creatures such as fish and mollusks and were developing equipment which specialised in gathering such food. 
Middens of discarded shells have been recovered in many areas, with some of the shells even being modified to make small cutting tools. Fish hunting was becoming a specialist skill, with humans developing barbed harpoons, either carved from bone or antler, or through the attachment of microliths to these bones or antlers, with the use of created adhesives. Spears were being developed using other types of microliths hafted onto a wooden shaft which could have either been used as a javelin spear or for close quarters stabbing. Poisons may have been developed to make the spear points more effective in killing prey and some microliths were used as arrowheads potentially to be used with a bow for archery style hunting. Prehistoric hunter gathering was a success and apparently fulfilled our natural requirements enough that we were able to have a bit of leisure time. With our highly developed brains, we were able to fill our spare time creating and discussing abstract thoughts and feelings. We realised our own mortality and felt it necessary to openly recognise it through expression. We chose to express our thoughts and feelings through the forum of art and ritual. So next time on the History of the World podcast, we will explore human art and ritual. The emergence of artistic expression and the spiritual belief system appear to have emerged simultaneously and in relation to each other. So it is a good opportunity to learn more about this subject of our characters together. As ever, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. There's some real traction of popularity with this podcast and it's very, very heartwarming. I've been receiving some messages. One of them is from a gentleman called Keegan and he's an anthropology major from Penn State University in the USA. He says, first off the bat, I love the podcast and I listen to them as soon as they're up. In your most recent episode, Settling the World, you had made the remark somewhere along the lines that you don't really believe that Sapiens committed a genocidal campaign across Europe and the Levant and instead believe that we outcompeted them based off of the lack of complexity of Neanderthalithics when compared to modern humans. Hmm, I will have to remind myself. Hang on. What I personally think is likely is that Homo sapiens were superior in intelligence and adaptability. My evidence for this is simple. The mode 4 or Ignatian technology attributed to Homo sapiens is clearly more advanced than the mode 3 Mousterian technology attributed to Neanderthals. So therefore in a competition for resources, my betting money would be on Homo sapiens coming out on top. Oh yeah, I remember now. What Keegan has put forward is two theories relating to big ass nets and tribal casualty ratios. And what Keegan says to me is that there's a bounty of lithographs which depict humans using large nets to corral enough animals into a killing corridor to feed their tribes for a considerable amount of time. And that there's evidence of these nets in the Meadow Cross site in western Pennsylvania and also from the African pygmies of the Congo Delta who still very much live a, a hunter-gatherer foraging lifestyle. 
the tribal casualty rate theory which Keegan puts forward compares the amount of casualties that you may get in tribal warfare compared to modern warfare. So he's taken the American Civil War as an example of something a lot more modern and organised and the tribal casualty ratio, something like the Beaver Wars some 200 years earlier, are substantially more. And for that reason, he suggested that the, the likelihood is that Neanderthals were more likely to get integrated due to the vast numbers of casualties depleting their numbers and making them probably less dangerous in the long run. So they wouldn't need to kill them all off and it's unsustainable for the Neanderthal tribes to continue onwards. And it's likely that the stronger members would be integrated into the Homo sapiens society. So very interesting points, very interesting indeed. In reality, the email is extremely interesting. You've gone into a great deal of detail, Keegan, and it's probably one of the more interesting messages that I've read, uh, just for the pure thought and detail that's gone into it. I hope that I can do a bit more justice to the story of Neanderthals meeting Homo sapiens and Neanderthals eventually disappearing because it really does deserve more analysis because it is a very, very fascinating topic and over the course of the next couple of podcasts there might be a couple of things that I mention that can add a bit of flesh to that story so hopefully I'll be able to do it a little bit more justice than just to mention the the stone tool technology differences between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens there's certainly a lot more to the discussion than that so thank you so much Keegan and feel free to get in touch whenever you like Great email, I really appreciated reading that. Todd Smith got in touch with the podcast again after speaking to us the other week and he was just asking me if there was any background or reasoning for doing the podcast and how long it takes for me to produce episodes. Well, normally I try to stay around five podcasts in front. I've slipped back a little bit, I must admit, so I need to put some work in, but... Normally a couple of hours a night for two or three nights a week and I can normally nail a a decent amount of material for a podcast. So it doesn't take that much time, to be honest with you. As long as you've got the right material and you sort of know where to go, then you can construct something quite good. In terms of my academic background, I don't have any, Todd, none whatsoever. I flunked out of school pretty much, but since that time I've been fascinated by history enough that I've bought many, many books and I've studied for many, many years. Online resources are great nowadays. You can learn so much. So you can become an expert in the comfort of your own living room. It's the most, the best library in the world is the internet. Luke Fountain got in touch with the podcast from Australia and he said, Great podcast, can we assume from history that Homo sapiens are just a link in the chain of evolution and no matter what we do, we'll inevitably become extinct? Well, maybe we'll become extinct and maybe we'll evolve into something fantastic. Maybe that's our future. Maybe we'll evolve into human beings that are bigger than planet Earth. Who knows? No one knows, but the inevitability is that we will either become extinct or change. That's It's got to be one of those two things. We can't go on forever. 
Fraser Robert has been in touch with the podcast from Scotland and he said, love the podcast, Chris. I've been working away from home in Ireland for the last five weeks and I discovered your podcast a couple of weeks ago. I've binge listened ever since. I love this subject and you've put it to the listeners perfectly. Looking forward to episode 12. Well, here it is. And really can't wait until you get into the ancient civilizations. It does seem like the ancient episodes are being looked forward to. I hope to do them some justice. Obviously, it's a change of subject matter and a change in the way that I probably have to go about gathering the information. There'll be more abundance and it'll really test my ability to organise it in such a way that it's a an interesting podcast and not something that you may have necessarily heard elsewhere before. So I'm hoping it will be somewhat unique to the style of History of the World podcast. Thank you everyone for the messages it's very kind and it's great to see that people are interacting it makes me feel like the work is worth something so thank you thank you again next week we're going to be looking at the art and ritual so that's going to be extremely interesting because that really talks about our own minds quite a lot so understanding why we're so consciously thinking about everything and our leisure time activities that's really going to be great to look into the emergence of that and then after that we reach a threshold where I can't hold it off any longer we're going to be going into the agricultural revolution the neolithic revolution and that will be episode 15 so episode 14 will be a summary podcast but I don't want you to think that that's going to be a letdown or an anticlimax because we're going to be exploring some of the factors that we have not discussed, such as natural catastrophes and whether they've had an impact on our migrations and evolutions and growing populations, and also factors such as the domestication of the dog. We've not even discussed that, and that really has been attributed to times that we have already discussed. So we need to revisit a couple of things, but we'll summarise it, put it all to bed, and then move on to agriculture and farming. Anyway, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms, so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr.